0: welcome back to the Ocean Impact Podcast, episode 57. I can't believe it. That is absolutely crazy to me. I'm one of your hosts for today, Amelia Held, And as always, I'm joined by one of IO's co-captains, Tim Silverwood, who has just gotten back from a jaunt around Italy. Tim, How are you feeling?
1: Feeling good. I think we just mentioned a little bit of the old brain fog having still reeled from the effects of some jet lag, but just excited to be back into another episode. This is one that we recorded uh, a little while back now, actually. This was in June when we sat down to speak to Dr. Chris Wilcox, who's the director of the Sustainable Fisheries Program at Mindaroo Foundation and the co-convener of the Fair Catch Alliance. So this is going to be a fascinating conversation today.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this one really is all based around, I guess, Australians specifically knowing what's on our plate when it comes to seafood? And I guess, you know, how sustainable is our seafood? It's a fascinating topic. And I think most people would be shocked here to know that two thirds of our seafood is actually imported. So Tim, maybe, you know, run us through what exactly that means and and maybe uh, some of the information you got in this informative episode.
1: Yeah, this is a really big question. Like you asked there, Amelia, how sustainable is our seafood? And In a nation like Australia, where we've got this badge that we like to wear as claiming that our industry is highly sustainable and we've got really good measures in place to protect fish stocks and ensure we have a long-term future for our fisheries. But the simple matter is Australians are among some of the highest consumers of seafood per annum. And it's not that it is all coming from Australian waters, around 65% of it is being imported. And this is indicative of what's happening all around the world, right? Fisheries is a global marketplace. So when you're buying in this seafood is coming from markets where they will not have the same high standards of sustainability that you might be able to claim your nation has. So Thanks to the work of, of Mindaroo Foundation and bringing in incredible talent like Dr. Chris Wilcox, we're starting to get a bit of a picture around, well, what is Australia doing, but also what is happening on the global stage? And that's where their work around um, the Global Fisheries Index was hugely informative to help understand what is the nature of global fish stocks and which ones are threatened and not being managed sustainably, and now being distilled right down to saying, well, you know what, if Australia does want to maintain this badge of being a leader, then we do need to tackle this big issue around seafood imports, and that's exactly what the work of the Fair Catch Alliance is trying to do. It's trying to strengthen these import controls to make sure not only what comes into the nation does meet those high standards, but also hopefully influence other nations to introduce these these controls as well.
0: Yeah, and I mean, look, you touched on the the Faircatch Alliance which you know, Chris went into this in some awesome detail. Tell me a little bit about our involvement because OIO is a proud member of the Fair Catch Alliance. Run me back to um, how we got involved. Yeah,
1: so the Fair Catch Alliance has been in operation for a little while now. Our Mindaroo Foundation and Australian Marine Conservation Society are really the ones leading the charge, but I think they're up to over 30 um, member organisations involved now. And essentially, yeah, just that very, very clear. Uh, mandate to strengthen Australia's seafood, seafood import controls and bring them in line with what they've been seeing happening in other jurisdictions around the world. And Chris talks about this a bit in the episode where nations where perhaps there was historically some really poor measures in place to actually have these labels on the country of origin of seafood and the species information countries like Spain and others throughout the EU who have now gone leaps and bounds ahead to make sure that when you go to the fishmonger or when you go to a supermarket or when you're purchasing fresh fish or cooked fish, you can very clearly know where that seafood has come from and detail right down to that species level of exactly what it is that you're choosing to purchase where if you go and do the same thing here in Australia... You will not get that information. You can go and order fish and chips, and that information doesn't exist. You'll say, I'll like the fish, please, and it could be shark, it could be a threatened species on the IUCN Red List. You do not the manga or the store or the restaurant is not required to actually illustrate and tell you what that information is. And that's just to me is barbaric because You know, we wouldn't just go to any other restaurant and expect to say, I'll have the meat and chips, please. And that could be panda for all you know. It just wouldn't be tolerated. So it just goes to show how we've really disregarded, I think, the oceans and those species that live within it. And it's time to change it.
0: Well said, Tim. Um, I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, um, the mislabeling study that Minduru carried out, of which Chris is a co-author, really delves into this. And it talks about how it's, it, you know, when we talk about mislabeling, it's also vague labelling. So to your point, you know, this kind of umbrella category, you know, you mentioned saying, I'll have the fish and chips, but it's even when something says, you know, a certain umbrella term or umbrella species, they say, but that could mean any amount of things and what they've found is that it can be oftentimes hiding endangered species that should not be, you know, turning up on our on our dinner plate. So uh, it's fascinating stuff and I know that being a nation that does enjoy their seafood, uh, it's, it's something that people need to be aware of and, and hopefully something that we can really encourage people to, to change. So Chris had a great call to action at the end of this episode. Do you want to touch a little bit on on his advice around that?
1: Yeah, well, the first thing people can do is, is go and learn more about the Fair Catch Alliance and that's simply faircatchalliance.org.au, but they have actually made it very simple for you to get really clear messaging around exactly what this uh, alliance aims to do. So one of the things that we really want to encourage our passionate listeners to this and supporters of improving ocean health globally is to actually grab some of that language. We're going to put some on the, on the blog post for this episode as well on our website and ask your local member of parliament, go and find out who your federal member is and ask them what are they doing to strengthen Australia's seafood import controls? Because since the alliance has been building momentum recently, We are getting indications that the federal government is alert to this and are starting to do some investigations and find out, okay, what do we need to do here to make sure that we are stepping up the game? And the pressure that you can put on your member just by asking some of these simple questions is really, really impactful. So yeah, make sure you follow the prompts on the show notes to actually make your voice count. And that could have a huge impact on this issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, we know that people power really, really is a huge thing. I mean, it really matters and it can really make change. So we're going to make it really easy for you guys. So definitely head to the show notes and uh, and check that out. And we'll leave some simple steps, a little bit of copy you can use and a really easy way to find your local MP. And you know, send them a message and let them know that you care, and ask what they're trying to do about this issue. And such great news to hear that since recording this episode, things are moving, things are happening. So now is the perfect time for us to all gather and uh, and put that pressure on and uh, make our voices heard.
1: Absolutely, and uh, you know, I just wanted to say a big thanks to Chris Wilcox for spending the time to record this episode. And just big props, I suppose, to all the Alliance members and the great work of Mindaroo Foundation, one of our partners, in helping to tackle this this wicked problem. Uh, and you can have a, a sway and an impact of your own by following those prompts.
0: Exactly right. And uh, Chris is from the beautiful state of WA, Lackvay. So, you know, love a little bit of homegrown talent there via, I think, Kansas, he said. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, let us know your thoughts. And again, do check out those show notes. Thanks, everyone.
1: I'm so excited to have on the Ocean Impact podcast today, Dr. Chris Wilcox, who's the Director of the Sustainable Fisheries Program at Mindaroo Foundation. And this is going to be a fascinating conversation about a lot of different ocean issues and challenges, but specifically the big ones around seafood and the way our human consumption of protein from the oceans and aquaculture is just having a far-reaching impact on people and the planet. Chris, how are you today?
2: I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Tim. I'm really excited to have a conversation about this stuff.
1: Yeah, look, just to sort of set the context, obviously, OIO is a proud member of the Fair Catch Alliance, and we are going to be doing a lot of conversation about the Faircatch Alliance today. But let's just start by going a little bit into your career in the ocean space. You've had a very far-reaching career, over 30 years as a quantitative biologist. You had a long stint at the CSIRO. You've had incredible skills and exploration across a huge number of areas around fish and spatial movements and fish conservation, bycatch reduction. But let's just maybe hand it over to you to tell us a little bit about your career, your academic journey uh, how it's gone, and perhaps some of the the key highlights that really stand up for you.
2: Sure, sure. I think I got lucky early on. Like, uh, my dad is sort of a geeky, booky sort of guy, and uh, I'm 54, so around the time when i was 7 my dad bought one of the first personal computers you could buy and so i learned to program in basic way back when when like the big technological advancement was to record your code onto a cassette tape so computers didn't have any memory and and so i kind of learned sort of computer programming kind of when computers first came around and so i was super interested in biology but had learned to program. And so it meant when I went off to uni, like I was already thinking about kind of how to analyze things and stuff like that. And, and so kind of essentially, those two, those two threads have been kind of part of my whole pathway all along is sort of actually working on analyzing data for patterns. And then thinking about kind of pointing that towards sustainability, really. I mean, for me, that's the central unifying thing in all the work I've done is trying to understand the impacts we have on the environment as humans and, and, and how to basically figure out ways to make our way as humans without undermining the environment
1: so that's huge though right you know you spoke then about that that passion for uh, understanding and for creating change but then this skill set that you brought which I'm guessing was quite deficient did you find sort of going in and working in that traditional biological sciences space that there was this gaping hole around how to use data, how to actually get the data, how to analyze it effectively in order to inform uh, decisions?
2: Yeah, I think like, you know, if you think about sciences, physics has had math in it for a long, long time and math got into biology a a lot later. And so, you know, the standard training for a physics person is lots of math. And so they think about those two things really together. But kind of math got into biology really you know, 50 years ago, maybe 100 years ago. And so, you know, even now, if you go look in biology departments, um, people who are doing environmental studies or ecology or, you know, other things, those two skills don't tend to intersect very much. And fisheries is one of the odd places in kind of biological science where you find them together, you know, it's a pretty mathy field because we're often trying to figure out how much we can harvest and what the data says about what the state of the system is and and those sorts of things. Um, so it's been a happy home for me, um, kind of working at that so the intersection of conservation and fisheries, really. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Speaking of, uh, of happy home, I mean, you've, you've got an accent. Maybe tell us a little bit about where you came from. You mentioned that your your father got your eyes wide open to, to technology and, and computing and programming. But yeah, tell us about your your global footsteps that have led you to uh, yeah. being now based in Western Australia and where else you've worked in Australia.
2: Sure. Sure. So I'm, uh, if you scratch deep, I'm a Kansas farm boy. I grew up working on dairies and riding horses and far from the ocean. I didn't see the ocean for the first time until I was uh, 15. And then I did, I I went to uni in, in Kansas, but was interested in conservation. Um, sort of you know the science behind biodiversity protection and then uh realized that i uh well actually to be honest i went to visit a friend who lived in san francisco for new year's one year um, at the end of uni and i saw a band called the cramps if you know them that's a sign of age but had such a good time in san francisco i was like i found my home and so i packed up my stuff on my motorcycle and moved west when i finished uni and uh so spent fifteen years living in Northern California and started out working in terrestrial things, sort of you know conservation of wetlands and stuff like that, and then eventually moved into into kind of marine stuff more and uh, worked in, in worked in consulting and uh, did a master's degree at UC Davis and then uh, did a PhD at UC Santa Cruz and uh, I was finishing up. I had a I had a bought a house during my PhD, like a couple blocks from the ocean in uh, Santa Cruz and I had my local point break. So i get in the morning, hop in my wetsuit, run down the road, have a surf, back, and then head off to work and work for the day. And uh, I wasn't really planning to leave that that little kind of piece of nirvana. And then uh, I got offered a job by a professor at UQ, um, University of Queensland here in Australia, um, Hugh Possingham. And he's Is a super interesting, really successful, um, kind of a a big player in the conservation world. So we packed up the house and moved over here. And um, actually, when I came here, I was working in the in the central desert. So I was doing stuff on uh, desert wetlands, these mound springs. If you've ever heard of them, they're they're basically like little desert oases. So in Australia, we have a we have a, a system where water sinks into the ground in the Great Dividing Range, and it basically goes underneath the sort of deep bedrock and flows out to roughly where the Stewart Highway is that connects Alice Springs and Adelaide. And there, there's a big fault and that water comes up under pressure. And so it makes all these little wetlands out in the desert. Um, so I was working on those, looking at how mining and other water users were affecting the biodiversity of fish and invertebrates and other things in those wetlands. Surfing uh, on Stradbrook Island and places like that, living in Brisbane and working. 3,000 kilometres away in the desert, and uh, I decided it was time to realign my life. Um, so I switched over to working on fisheries and took a job with CSIRO in Tassie. Yeah, and the rest is history. So that was 20, 20 some odd years ago and been doing marine stuff
1: since then. I can't wait to uh, dive into some questions around fisheries and, and and what you know and what people should know around how we've uh, treated our fish stocks uh, in recent history. But let's just go first to just talking a little bit about uh, Mindaroo's Sustainable Fisheries Program and and your role as the director there, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I've been been the, the head of the program for about a year. It started out really around a desire to understand the status of fish stocks around the world, you know, I think, um, Andrew Forrest, one of the two founders, was originally um, really the the whole status of fish stocks drew his attention. I think that's the easiest way to say it, and and some dismay in that you know depletion is. Depletion of fish stocks due to overfishing is essentially a global problem. We don't actually understand what the status of about of more than half of the stocks is. They're just un, unmonitored for lots of reasons. And, you know, those fish stocks actually deliver a lot of benefits to humans. They support economies in many countries. They contribute food to people. They provide jobs. They get people through periods of disruption, you know, when COVID hit Indonesia, and tourism shut down, a lot of people working in tourism went back to their villages and went back to fishing. And and that's what got their families food and livelihoods and things to get through, you know, what otherwise would have been a, a very, very um, disruptive sort of period. No job, no no prospects, no food. Yeah. So I think like that, that really was the inception of the fisheries program. And It's grown. It started out with basically trying to tackle that problem, understanding what kind of global fisheries status is and kind of how we're managing them. And then as that global fishing index got released. The program's really then expanded into trying to think about what we do to address the problem. So improving the state of fish stocks and reducing overfishing. And that that then has led to a kind of more broad investment strategy. So at the moment, we have a commitment to keep producing this global fisheries index, fishing index rather. And that. Is a is a uh, one of the ways that we're contributing to the measure measurement of the progress toward the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and we'll produce that you know every four years or so. And then we're we're doing a bunch of work on ground trying to support countries to integrate fisheries and biodiversity conservation. Particularly, we do a lot of stuff in uh, in closer to the coastal zone. So we have projects in. Let's see, in the Philippines, in Timor, we're getting ready to start up some work in Vietnam and then we're sort of evaluating other places. And so a good example of that is we're supporting Rare, which is an NGO that works in the Philippines, among other places. And they have this model where they, they essentially start a, uh, a savings bank in a community. So more or less the women in a community in a fishing village get together and they pool their money into a savings bank. They all save together. And then they they make loans and things like that out of that savings bank. So it's a way for people that don't have access to banks and insurance and things like that to kind of pool resources and create that. And out of that organization, the uh, RARE, this NGO, then basically grows a program of managing the fishing stocks that the families are fishing, integrating marine protected areas into those into the Fishing management, um, trying to argue for rights for the village to control an area. You know, I don't know how much you talk about the tragedy of the commons, but but one of the challenges in fishing is if people don't have control over an area where they're harvesting, you tend to get competition, and so then you get people competing for the resource. The resource gets overfished, and and everybody loses. And so one of the big tenets around that approach is trying to give people some exclusive rela- rights to where they fish. So we have a bunch of work that looks like that, that's sort of, you know, it's almost uh, kind of economic development, poverty alleviation, but it's really through a biodiversity and fisheries management lens. And then we're doing a bunch of work on... on <clears throat> Basically trying to think about how we support uh, improvement of management of vessels at sea. So we just launched a big campaign at the Our Oceans meeting in Panama uh, a few months ago, trying to make countries that have fishing vessels that are registered to the country, manage them more effectively, um, pushing those countries to ensure that their vessels are operating responsibly. So that's kind of on the high seas and when vessels are operating in foreign countries. So that, that's all just getting up and going, that's a new program. And then uh, we're doing a bunch of stuff here in Australia around trying to address illegal seafood coming into the Australian market. Um, and that's sort of around this Fair Catch uh, campaign. Um, but, but in particular, I'm trying to drive regulatory reform to ensure that we, we basically prevent the flows of that seafood into the domestic market. I mean, I think lots of people don't realize we get two-thirds of our seafood from overseas. So we have lots of ocean and we manage it relatively well here in Australia. Our our fisheries by and large are, are, are at least to a large extent, are, are very well managed, but that means that they they don't produce all that much um, for a range of reasons but one reason is because we hold them to high standards around sustainability and so we also eat a lot of fish and that means that has to come from somewhere and so it comes from imports.
1: Yes and I, I'm looking forward to, to diving a little bit deeper into into that one shortly because it is fascinating that you can have a nation that holds its head up high and portrays itself as, as a, setting a great standard but then the sheer numbers don't really stack up. If two thirds of that seafood are coming from across the the world where those standards don't um, aren't held as high, then you're you're embroiled in, in the whole fiasco. So let's talk, I guess, a little bit about that. Just for the sake of of the listeners, just explore a little bit around the the state of global fisheries. You mentioned that it incredibly impactful work around the the fisheries index and and what's been discovered maybe just open our eyes and our ears up to sort of how bad the problem is and how it's got so bad what's what's the sort of the latest and the greatest and the worst and the best news around the way we're treating um, global fish stocks yeah okay
2: i think one thing that's important to keep in mind is we 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 manage fishing in such a way to maximize its productivity. Like the whole idea is that is that we manage it to to get the most fish out of the system we can, right? So, you know, it's you know in, in a way it's better to think of this like like we do agriculture and things. You know, no nobody looks at a farm and questions the sustainability of a farm, right? despite the fact that like if you look at land, we've basically converted something like 97% of all land to agriculture. So what we're doing in the ocean is is also quite disruptive, but it's kind of the story of how humans extract resources from the environment. We're just we're just more familiar with looking at a farm so it doesn't even register as like a biodiversity impact. So in the ocean, the way we approach fisheries management is, we, we basically fish stocks down to about 40% of the biomass they start with. And the reasoning behind that is, as there are less adult fish, each adult fish is competing less for food, and so they make essentially more offspring. And so if you want to get the most fish out of a system each year, year after year, then you'll get that if you fish the stock down to about 40% of what its native biomass is. And more or less, you can think of it just like with people. If you, if you have a community where everyone is in the middle of their prime reproductive years, i.e. there's not lots of old people, you'll, you'll basically produce humans as fast as you possibly can. That's really what we're doing with fish. The challenge with that is it's then a fine line to hold the system at that level, right? Because 40% is not very much, given you started with 100%. And so in places where you have fish that are really robust in terms of how fast they re- reproduce, that's, that's quite doable. And so There's sort of, you can kind of think it from an ecological perspective. There's two kinds of systems. There's essentially systems that are driven by the environment. So lots of insects work this way and and some fish and invertebrates work this way. That the main thing that controls their, their population is what the environment is like. So if the environment's really good, they make tons of babies. There's lots of them. It's really productive. If the environment's bad, they go the opposite way. So shrimp, squid, things like that work like that. And in that case, the fishing is really, might drive them down, but, but it's pretty hard to really drive them very low because it's mostly the environment that's affecting them and they tend to have these real bursty populations. So one year you have a lot, one year you have a little. The other sort of what biologists would call a life history strategy, but the other type of system is where it's kind of more like humans. We don't have very many babies. Most of us are adults. We live a long time. And so if you have fish that look like that, live a long time, not very many babies, it's very actually easy to over harvest them because as you fish the adult stock down to 40% of what it originally was, you're actually taking away a bunch of its capacity for growth because it's not actually controlled by the environment. It's kind of controlled by competition amongst the adults for food and things or predators or other things like that. But those populations tend to be mostly adults and very stable. Okay, so let's go to depletion and, and over-harvesting. So fish that are that are attached to reefs, let's say, that grow slow, have, have long lifetimes like grouper and things like that, they fall into that second category. They tend to have very stable populations, and they also have the lack of luck of being very tasty and very easy to get to. And so if you look globally, those sort of fish tend to be quite heavily depleted. And and it's sort of predictable, right? It The animals grow slow. They're close to shore. It doesn't require very much technology to get to them. They're widely accessible. They're associated with reefs and things that don't move. So you know where to find them. And so we tend to deplete them. And if you look globally, those sorts of species, they might be at five or 10% of their native biomass, their original unfished biomass. And, you know, you see examples all around Australia. So the reef fish that many people like to go spear fishing or line fishing for recreationally, you know, there's problems around Australia with depletion of those species. And, and it's exactly for this reason. They're slow growing, they taste good, they're easy to get to, you can predict where they're gonna be. And so, you know, they tend to get pretty heavy fishing pressure. That's true, essentially globally. If you look at things that are far offshore, they have small bodies, they grow fast, you know, you got to have a big boat to get out to them. You kind of have to catch them with a net and things. So you have big kind of industrial requirements in order to take them. They tend to actually not be as, as depleted because there's just fewer, fewer people after them. They're harder to get to. It's expensive to get to them. And one, one sort of interesting thing about these commercial fisheries is people don't maybe think about this but you're actually fishing for dollars the fishermen are fishing for dollars They're, they're not fishing for fish and so if there's not enough fish to catch when they do a fishing trip that pays for the diesel and the labor and the mortgage on the boat and all those things the commercial vessels can't go after those things it's just not profitable and so they can operate for a little while on credit and losing money and things but in the end, there's a constraint there. And and I think that's why you see this difference between the kind of inshore species and the offshore species. You know, yeah, there's some over-harvesting of tuna that happens and things like that. Some of those high, high seas species, there are problems. You know, there's a bunch of concern at the moment around squid um, because there's effectively very little regulation or no regulation on the high seas outside of country's boundaries on fishing a squid. And there's a lot of demand. And so there's a lot of vessels chasing them. But but really where you see the most problems is in these sort of inshore um, species that are more broadly accessible. Um, yeah, so I think the, the figure is, you know, somewhere around half of the species uh, globally are, are thought to be fished to their full capacity. You know, so they're at that 40% or maybe slightly below it. Uh, about, about 20 or 30% appear to be overfished. But the, the other big problem is we really only know those answers for about half of all the stocks we fish in the world. And so m- most of the problem is just we don't know what the status is. And if that's the case, it's very hard to then manage those stocks for sustainability. You know, no one, no one's collecting the information.
1: Is there two sides to that? There's the, the biological data on the stocks, on the populations, but then also the catch data. Perhaps you could sort of speak to, to those two parts and are we better at one and, and worse at the other or are we kind of, we've got improvements to make on both fronts?
2: I think they're not, I would say those two things are part of, a, of the same system. You know, in a way, these are you can kind of think of fishing as the the last form of large-scale hunting right and so it's this linked biological and social system right the the, the fishing vessels and how they operate and the dynamics of people operating them and all of those things are intimately linked to where the fish are how fast the fish grow how many fish you catch it, it's all one very tightly interlinked system you know and that's part of the challenge you've got climate change and habitat conversion and all these things affecting the biological dynamics of the fish stock and at the same time you've got diesel prices and countries subsidizing fishing vessels for development and you know technology change on the social side and it makes it actually a hard system to manage because it there's dynamics in both directions i think one of the big challenges in in fisheries is just collecting the information to manage them Right. You know, you have lots of vessels like you take Indonesia. There's a half a million fishing vessels, give or take <laughs> 100,000 or so, trying to figure out what all those vessels are doing, how much they're catching across this gigantic archipelago that, you know, if you've if you ever seen someone impose Indonesia's map on kind of the map of Asia, it, it's actually pretty striking. It basically goes from the UK to China. Like it's a huge place. And so you imagine trying to go and measure what all those vessels are doing, what they're landing, what species they're taking, how many days they're at sea at that sort of scale. And, and that's something that, that I think is one of the real challenges we face in managing fisheries well, is just being efficient, collecting all that information. you know, And then, then there's the whole problem of making use of it and, and making management rules that work and all those things. You know we're talking about big distributed systems. it's like it's like understanding where all the cars are in a city right you can you can have a stoplight camera and understand who's at the stoplight, but like if you actually try to map where all the cars are, that's actually a hard problem
1: so it's pretty awesome then that here in Australia um and with the work of the Fair catcher lights, we're sort of saying, hey, not only do we want to hold." our fisheries to a very high standard, but we want to play our role as global stewards and uh, all you know, players in a sustainable ocean for, for the future to actually instigate these changes. So maybe let's just talk a little bit about the, the Fair Catch Alliance and and the goals of the initiative and, and what you'd like to see happen as a result of Australia stepping up and joining other global leaders to, to take bold action where it's very necessary.
2: Yeah. So... I guess a, b- a piece of background. So just setting the scene, we're importing about two thirds of the fish we eat. So you go down to the to the fishmonger near you, you go to the fish and chip shop, go to the grocery store. It's about a two thirds chance that you're actually eating something that's not Australian. That's one piece. The other piece is we actually don't have any regulations that ensure all that fish we're importing is legal. So it could it could be caught with labor that is is sort of having unfair labor practices um, or more extreme things. It could be caught in places that the vessels don't have permits. It could be caught with gear that's not allowed. We have no we have no. Sh- no regulation at the border that ensures that what's coming in is illegal. And so given that there's a big volume and we don't have these sort of regulations in place, you know, there's a real need here in Australia to bring us in line with what other developed countries are doing. So Europe and the US both have existing rules that have come into place in the last decade to prevent illegal seafood from coming into their markets. And and ultimately that means as a consumer, you can buy products and be confident. Um, that that you're not helping sort of deplete a stock somewhere else because of illegal fishing. That that those practices that that regulation is now spreading to Japan and South Korea, and and so Australia has a real opportunity to step up and sort of join this this group of markets that are essentially trying to change one of the major problems with managing fisheries. The the estimate is something like twenty percent of fish catch um, is what's called IUU. So that means illegal, unreported or unregulated. And essentially that means it was caught in some way that breaks the rules or it was caught and was supposed to be reported and wasn't reported. And, and basically those two pieces together are, are effectively what IUU is. And so I think the Australian government has signaled that it's willing to consider um, making some regulatory reform in this space. And, and consider bringing in a, an import rule. And the Fair Catch Alliance is really a broad church of um, not religious people, but interested groups um, that want to see the Australian government bring something in that's effective, feasible, and also ambitious. And, and so that we address this problem. because. That 20% of of global seafood that's IUU is actually one of the key challenges that needs to be addressed in order to harvest fish sustainably. You know, it's quite possible to have sustainable fisheries. You know, in some sense, if we fish correctly, it means that we have a value for a natural marine ecosystem that should stay intact indefinitely right? That's, that's the whole beauty of this sort of hunting model. I mean, if you go to the U.S., the reason that there's a lot of wetland conservation in the U.S. is that people like to shoot ducks and people that like to shoot ducks vote. And so the people that are basically hunting are driving a lot of the wetland conservation in the U.S. because they need those wetlands there in order to do what they want to do. And I think fishing is a similar thing. There's actually a big opportunity to harve to to recruit fishing interests, both recreational and commercial, into environment conservation. Most of the people involved in that space really have a very deep interest in having intact systems. So anyway, that was a that was an aside. So the Fair Catch Alliance is really trying to support the government, drive the government, assist the government in implementing a, a regulation, in particular something that's ambitious and effective really, in terms of regulating this illegal seafood import.
1: It seems you know so common sense, and and obviously there is some statistics you can probably share around the public's response when they're made aware of of the fact that two thirds of the seafood consumed in Australia is imported. It feels like everyone believes in, in making these changes. What are some of the barriers, and what can we do about some of that resistance, if there is, if there is some?
2: Yeah, I think one one barrier is just getting it on the agenda, right? Like eighty percent of people don't know that their seafood is imported, and there's and so we did some social surveys, um, and there's huge demand for sustainability. So the appetite in Australia for for food generally and seafood in particular to be legal, sustainable, all those sorts of things is nearly unanimous when you do consumer surveys. And so it's one piece of this problem is just is. Is effectively an awareness problem. You know, people people here in Australia think most of our seafood comes from our own waters, and so they assume it meets the same sort of standards as all the other things that we have in Australia. You know, this is a well-regulated place. Generally, things are done the way they're supposed to be. There's a big emphasis for us culturally. I I now consider myself culturally Australian. I've been here was half my life. You know, there's quite an appetite for things to be done properly and an expectation that that's how it works. And if people are unaware of this huge amount of imports we have, you know, they just don't understand that that actually we don't have those assurances that we would expect. And so I think one piece of this is, is bringing it to the public and raising the public's awareness that your expectations are probably actually not being met because you don't actually understand that that we're getting imported seafood. And so all these things that you would think would be in place are not necessarily. I think that's a piece of it. Another piece of it is really helping, helping the government to grapple with the scale of the problem and with ways to be effective. You know, when you first look at this thing, It seems like this huge problem with lots of unknowns. We don't know where fish is coming from. We don't know what the risks are in that place. We don't know what the illegal behaviors are. There's all this uncertainty. In fact, we do know most of that stuff. You can get it from trade data. You can get it from talking to the industry. There's actually pretty reasonable information on kind of levels of at least risk of illegal behavior and stuff in different places so it's quite possible for us to look at the markets we're getting stuff from and understand at least a bit about our risk and in the end kind of it's 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 a sort of question of do you wait till you have perfect information or do you recognize the downside is big and so you take action early and i think That's one of the other arguments that the Fair Catch campaign is essentially trying to articulate to the government is, okay, understand risk, fine, get a sense of how big the problem is. It's pretty clear that it's that it's that it could be a fairly substantial problem. So we should make that transition from thinking about whether it's a problem or not to to addressing it and putting some regulations in place relatively quickly. I think it's it's what the public expects. It's what the public would think would be in place and so you know i think it's time to move really
1: yes speaking of the public and and of the scale probably a good segue to talk about Mislabelling and how I suppose you know, significant it would be if we clicked our fingers tomorrow, Chris, and we had the the uh, the goals of the of the alliance met and, and things are transformed. It, it would be a very different experience to a, a restaurant or a fishmonger or a supermarket for Australians. So let's perhaps talk a little bit about that um, in the context of some of the work you've been doing to understand the the, the perils of labelling and mislabeling. So maybe we
2: start with a story. One of my one of the folks working on our team here's um, a woman named Julia and Julia is Spanish. And Spain historically has been let's just say not a good guy in the fishing world. you know they were they were widely accused of many things and in fact, some Spanish companies were convicted of of being fairly naughty um, around fish. And Spain's had a big reform over the last decade. And so the story that Julia was telling us is in Spain now, you can walk into a fish market. Every single fish in the display case is labeled at the species level. You can see on the label where it was caught in the world and the country it was caught by and information like that. So, so literally Spain now makes all that information available for every single fish in every single market in the country. And it's now just normal like it would be weird for a Spaniard to walk into a fish market and not be able to see that stuff and so I think I went down a rabbit hole help me
1: where was I going (laughs) he's talking about how like if if the if the laws did change around country of like origin labeling how different it would feel for Australians going to the the fishmonger tomorrow yeah 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 so we'd be like Spain yeah hey
2: everyone take a nap in the afternoon and you'd know where your fish is from I think you know. In seriousness, we have the we. Have, if you break about the, if you break this whole problem apart, the whole problem looks like the thing is caught somewhere. We don't really know where it's caught, and none of the product is tracked through the market. Product then flows through the market. If it comes from overseas, it hits our border. We don't really control it at the border, and then it flows from our border through the supply chain down to you and me. We buy it in the shop, and and right now that whole thing is not transparent to us. So the Spaniards have kind of solved this, they got a rule at the border and they track the thing and you can go in the shop, see what's there. For us, we're sort of facing kind of the the whole problem still and we haven't really injected solutions. And so one, one piece of this is, can the consumer understand at their end what it is they're buying, where it's from, all that sort of stuff. And the other piece is, can the consumer expect that there's this barrier at the border that really tries to filter out the bad stuff that shouldn't be there. And so when you're reading labels and things, you really just have to work out, was that thing what I want to buy? And if I go look on a website or something, can I work out if if it meets my sustainability desires or does it have the label or other things? And so one piece of the work we did um, in the foundation was to ask that that second bit is kind of, if you think about this whole rainbow of the trip, this piece of fish is taken to get to you, and you're in the shop trying to make a decision about what you're going to buy, can you find the information? So does your world look like the world of the Spaniards? Or, or do you just buy something that's white and vaguely fishy smelling? And and if, if you do find out what that is, if you can read the label, does it actually match the product? And so we did this study basically looking at how good the labels are at the consumer end, so in restaurants and grocery stores and, and fish markets, fishmongers. And then we also tested the DNA from those um, samples to see if when you read the label and you look what the actual meat is that you're eating, do those things match? You know, because if you think about it in another context, if you went into a grocery store to buy, not fish, but meat, would you be willing to be thinking you're buying a steak and actually get a chicken? Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't be willing to do that at all. And, and that's sort of the question we're sort of asking in the fish space. So in the end, we did this big study. It looks like about a uh, sort of 10-ish, 10ish, 12ish percent of all the products that you would buy that are fish products in the market aren't the species it says it is, or, or aren't the, the kind of taxonomic label. So some of this is labeled at the species, like if it's yellowfin tuna, that's actually a species. So we can ask the question at the species level. If it's flake, people might not be aware, flake is sort of a generic name for sharks. And so then you're talking about a few different families. But even at that level, you still can get um, what's called product substitution. So other species that are not sharks sold to you as if they were sharks. So overall in in the market, it looks like it's about... 12% 12% or so. Um, and that matches what you see internationally, you know, when people have done similar studies in other countries in Europe and the US, they, they find similar patterns. So I guess in, in some ways, it, it is w- what you would expect, but it is also problematic. Like, you know, I was buying a porterhouse steak and someone sold me bacon 12% of the time. That's a problem.
1: Yes. Well, you gave those insights into the you know, the population, sort of 80%. I'm sure that the listeners of the Ocean Impact podcast are, uh, are maybe a little bit more informed, but I reckon we're still making people shake their heads and tut, tut, tut at just how we, we got ourselves into this mess. But you've identified that other countries and jurisdictions have picked up the pace and have actually made some changes quite quickly. So maybe let's just sort of round out this episode with, with some of those next steps for the campaign. And really importantly, what, what can people be doing who are listening to this podcast who are connected into industries or networks where they can actually make this known and let's all collectively do something about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's touch on, let's touch on the opportunities. Australia is kind of uniquely placed. We're 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 sort of a funny country, right? We're we're a wealthy country but we're not very many people. And so we tend to as a country kind of take a cooperative approach internationally you know, we try to help and try to facilitate things. And we consult with our neighbors when we take actions and stuff. And I think that's a model that we really could bring to bear in this case. So right now, we're kind of stuck with acting as as a as a single country, right? We can only really affect our market and where we buy from. And so you know, that kind of pathway I was describing from where the catching location is, how the product moves through the supply chain, crosses the border, moves through the supply chain internally and ends up at the consumer. We can, con- we can kind of control that system. And so one of the key opportunities for us is to define essentially how we want record keeping to happen in that system, if you're gonna sell us a product. And so we do it in lots of other contexts. We do it when we import wood, we do it when we import food, we just need to apply it to to seafood, and so that's that's one piece. But if we if we think carefully about that, and we consider the other models, so the EU model and the US model, they've both done it kind of for their own markets. Actually, we can take a more cooperative approach. So we can potentially design a system that we'll use here. But that other countries can join, <coughs> and I think that's that's one of the real key opportunities we have. Because in the end, the goal is really not just to prevent illegal seafood here, but it's to it's to create the conditions to get rid of illegal seafood all up, and and to drive towards sustainability. And if we can help other countries by providing a platform where they can also track the product that comes into their markets, it means we can get rid of fraud. So you know you can't get 10 fish in a warehouse 5 of which were caught legally 5 of which were caught illegally and and 5 certificates of legality and they flow kind of in some untracked way you know everyone knows what's coming to their market and they're using a common system to basically ring fence that resource so there's no illegal stuff flowing out so i think like it, it's pretty clear watching what else has been done by other countries what what our system should look like. It basically should have documentation all the way through. You wanna avoid fraud, you wanna know where it was caught, all that sort of stuff. Those principles are pretty straightforward, but really the big place Australia could lead is designing this sort of platform that others can hop onto and use. And and so basically building a global coalition around this. And. I, I think that would be, that would be really impactfully internationally and would make a fundamental difference in kind of how we address one of the big challenges around kind of our impact on the ocean
1: at least in terms of fishing. Mm, That's fantastic. And, you know, over the the previous administration, signing on to the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy, ministers travelling around the world talking about Australia's ocean credentials and our leadership on oceans. So it seems like a a very important progression to to walk the talk, so to speak. And uh, this sounds like it's very available to us. So what about the, the public then, Chris? What would you sort of be telling people listening today who are thinking about what they can do as an individual or in, in their sphere of influence to help the campaign? So obviously there's lots of
2: consumer and end consumer stuff that's been around for a while, right? There's guides about buying sustainability and things like that. You know, those are good things to do and I'd encourage people to do them. This import regulation and the country of origin regulation that the government is considering, those are, those are government processes, right? So the way those things work is the, the agencies that are charged with designing that sort of policy go through a design process? And then it comes to a minister to decide, is that going to get implemented or not? And you can certainly, people can certainly submit comments and things into that design poli- design process, or they can reach out to, to industries or other organizations that they have connections to and say, look, I'd really like you to participate in this. I'd like you to drive it forward, things like that. But but really, I think one place for people to have a big impact is to write to their MP. So in general, politicians, for every letter they get, for every direct contact, will assume that there's a much bigger population out there that's interested, that just hasn't reached out. And when this goes from something that's being designed by an administrative agency, a piece of the bureaucracy to a decision about whether it gets implemented by a politician. That's a place that people can have a real impact. So if you go on the Fair Catch Alliance website, we have a place that you can sign up to uh, get information, register your interest. We'll tell you what's going on. We put materials out and things like that. You can check back on the website. Um, But but really the fundamental message is reach out to your MP, call your local member, tell them it's important to you, tell them that you expect to be able to buy well-managed seafood, tell them that you know that most of this is imported and you want them to pay attention, Um, tell them that there's a process going on and you'd like to see them participate in the the political end of that process and you'd like to see this policy come into force. I think that's, to me, that, that fundamentally is the place where your listeners can have the biggest impact
1: yeah and that website faircatchalights.org.au it would be really simple to to copy and paste some of that key messaging if you're emailing or you're calling your local mp uh, and that'll help make them realize that wow there's a lot of people out there who are actually looking and watching everything i do uh, around this issue just to
2: a mention of a resource, we have an open letter that's sort of a, a brief letter that they can look at. It's on the Catch website, and they're more than welcome
1: to clip a piece of that for their email to their MP absolutely and we really encourage you to do that never doubt that the small effort that you make in that instance does have a huge impact as as chris was outlining look it's been a great conversation we've filled in everyone's awareness they're up to their eyeballs in in more knowledge than they did uh 50 minutes ago about this uh this very important subject is there anything that you wanted to talk to today chris that you haven't had a chance to address yet um and if not, maybe just some some closing words from you.
2: Yeah, no, it's been it's been really fun. Uh, it, it's fun being silly on the on the podcast with you um, talking about pigs and bacon and uh, Kansas farming and things like that. I, I I would just echo what you said. Politicians interpret people's voices in a in a in a very particular way. And if you make your voice heard, um, you will drive change and so i think you know if sustainability and and that sort of thing is something you believe in and the oceans important to you reach out to your politician they're there to they're there to amplify your voice right that's their job so yeah, thanks tons, Tim. It was fun chatting. Hopefully we'll get stuck again sometime soon. Yes, and
1: a big thanks, I guess, to all the the members of the Fair Catch Alliance and the entire team at Mindaroo working on these critical ocean issues. You know, I think Australia and the world is is better placed to have such incredible resources, you know, putting their shoulder to the wheel at the moment. So well done and thank you for your time, Chris. All right. Thanks, mate.
0: Can't take the ocean out of Guys, we hope you enjoy this episode. Please leave us a bit of feedback. It really helps us out. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review. On Spotify, you can let us know what you loved about the episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to drop us a comment or hit the like button. It means a lot.